Welcome to the Billingshurst Family Church Podcast. For more information or to support our work in Billingshurst and the surrounding areas, please visit billingshurstfamily.church. Right, hi everyone. Um, If you don't know who I am, I'm Neil, uh, one of the elders here at the church. Um, We're in a little mini-series and um, I'm preaching in the middle of the mini-series on our second sermon on Gideon in our Judges, Where Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment series. Um, It's a familiar story, but today's story is an odd story. It's kind of an unexpected, amazing victory, where God seemed to make it a lot harder than it needed to be, um, and yet where God still saved them, even when some of the people in the story, including Gideon himself, acted very badly. And um, I think this reminds us really of the way that God treats us, that despite the way we behave sometimes, the bad things that we do, he still seems to delight in saving us. He still loves to save us through what he did through his son Jesus, um, when Jesus died on the cross and gave up his life to save us from our sins. And um, I had it when I was kind of preparing the story. I really felt it's one of these stories that has a kind of a, like a thread running right through it. Um, and the thread is God's grace. And I want to encourage us as we look at this story just to keep that in mind. Because it's not just a, so- a story with a few kind of nice moral life lessons in it. It's, um, it's a story of a rescue. And it's a rescue that points to our rescue. And most importantly, points to the person, the man who rescued us, Jesus. And um, we're going to start by, I'm going to read the first part of the story. And then I'm going to talk through the second part, kind of summarise it. uh, But before we do that, I'll pray and I'll ask God to reveal Jesus afresh to us through his word. Yeah, Father God, I want to thank you for Jesus. I want to thank you for the way you've already revealed yourself both as an almighty God, but also as a God who is our friend, who is involved in us. And a God who's, who's with us, as we heard as well. A God who helps us through the things in life we struggle with, the things that we find difficult. And that encouraged me to hear that word because that's part of what I felt you put on my heart to share with us this morning. So, Father God, I want to pray most of all, as we look at your word, that our focus, our attention... Everything that we do, everything that I say, everything that is going on, most of all will be about your son, Jesus. Because it is all about you, our God who, you know, one day will be bound before you. And as was shared as well, will be every knee will pray and worship you. But I pray that you'll help us to do that now. Uh, And especially for me as I preach through your word. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay. So, last time, we heard, as Nick shared with us, how God called Gideon, um, a man who was hiding away in fear, a man called to save the Israelites from their oppressors, the Midianites. Um, In secret, he destroys um, an idol uh, to Baal, and then he sends out messengers from his tribe. He belonged to the tribe of Manasseh, and uh, there were tribes to the north of them, um, called Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. He, there's a bit weird things in the story. He lays out fleeces um, to confirm that God is with him. And then he gathers an army close to where the uncounted, unnumbered hordes of the Midianites and the Amalekites are gathered. 
And we're going to start by reading from Judges 7, verse 1. We're going to have it up on the screen so you can follow it there. You can read in your Bibles, on your phones, your various devices as well. Um, And we're going to see what happened. Okay, so we're starting at uh, Judges, chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, I can never pronounce that name, that is Gideon and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped behind, beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling... Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of them whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with them. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provision in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all of you with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. 
where they had set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and they smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. To blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Gideon. Okay, so Gideon does the sensible thing. He gathers a big army, loads of men to fight their enemies. But God has got other ideas. He's so concerned that Gideon and the Israelites see that the victory is not down to them, that he prunes the army down. I go mathematical at this point. First of all, by 70%, as he tells Gideon to send those that are fearful. Then, down to less than 1%, as he restricts them just to the 300 men who drink water in a particular way. Now, um, Moses had been given instructions in Deuteronomy 20 about who could serve in their army. And um, there there were various reasons. One of them was that men who'd been married for less than a year couldn't fight. Um, But one of the reasons was that they should not use those that were fearful and faint-hearted and sent home. And the reason given was so they don't make the other soldiers like them, because fear, of course, is infectious. And, um, but the next one, I think it's quite interesting, the winnowing down by the way they drink. In my early years at church, we were always told um, when I was a kid that preachers would often say that God only wanted the vigilant. Um, there was something special about the guys who cut the water and put it in their hands rather than ones who kneeled down to drink. And that was kind of seen as a spiritual lesson for us to be vigilant and be prepared But it's interesting, actually, because the passage doesn't really say anything about each of the groups. It doesn't say which are better. And I think there's a danger in thinking like that as well, because it kind of goes against the whole thing of what God was saying there, that actually there wasn't something special about these 300, other than the fact it was only 300 and not 32,000. And I think it was just God just chose a way to break the army down. Because the key message here is that it was going to be about God's way and not um, their way, that victory would be won. But I love this story as well, because also you see about the kindness and the graciousness of God to Gideon. And he allowed him to be encouraged in quite um, an unexpected kind of way that you wouldn't normally see. As he used an enemy soldier in his dream and the way that his friend interpreted that to encourage him. A dream that really unequivocally said... God is going to bring a victory and that they were going to win. And God knew how Gideon was wired. He knew the kind of man that he was. He knew he was not a confident guy. He knew that he needed encouragement. And what I like about this is that God didn't judge him. He didn't say, I'll use someone else because Gideon's no good. No, instead he let him get his encouragement from this unlikely source from one of his enemies. 
And so he was able to be completely sure that God's promise was about to be fulfilled and they were going to be saved. And so Gideon goes back to the camp. And I like the way he responds. After hearing the dream, the first thing he does is he worships God. And we've, we've had a bit of that in the meeting this morning, haven't we? It's really important, isn't it, to show God gratitude and to give God glory for the amazing things he's about to do, for his amazing mercy and kindness. And then Gideon, now encouraged by God, gathers up the men and he reveals the way that God is going to do it. He reveals God's plan to them about how they were going to get the victory, which they would enjoy as long as they did it God's way. And as Gideon and the 300 men did it God's way, they followed God's plan and they trusted in God's promise, it started brilliantly. And that's kind of the Sunday school story that we often heard. But there's a bit of a sting in the tail in this story and it kind of doesn't end quite as well. And yet, even though in the midst of all those things that went wrong, God still saved them. And um, I think that just reminds us really how God's mercy always triumphs over judgment. So Gideon executes the plan, which is basically to take his 300 men and surround this vast army, to which at this point they're really just a pinprick. They're really not, you know, there's not a lot of them, are there? Make a lot of noise and shine their lights in the darkness. Let's be honest, that's probably not in the strategy books, is it? That's not the normal way to fight against a massive army where, it, you know, it, that they had camels beyond counting. But unbelievably, it worked. I think we're so familiar with the story that sometimes we just miss that. How odd, how weird this plan was. And yet it worked. They start attacking each other in the confusion and the noise. So several of them get knocked out of the battle, killed, whatever, before that even starts. And then they just turn up tail and they flee. And they go charging down um, through Israel. And um, the key here is, of course, they just do what God told them to do. They trust his promise, they use his plan, and they succeed. Sounds really easy, doesn't it? And then amazingly, not one of them was harmed or hurt in the whole thing. But unfortunately, there's a bad ending, and um, I'm hoping a map's going to come up. We did have a pointer, but we don't have any batteries, so you're going to have to kind of use your imagination here. But we've got this little red circle up here. This is where it all happened. And then what they do is they go charging off down the valley of the Jordan. And um, what, what Gideon then does is he calls out the really large force that they have, which is the, the men of Ephraim, who are down there in the south. And they go charging down. And um, what they do is the army of the Midianites kind of splits in two. And there's one army that's led by the two princes these are guys called Oroeb and Zeb. And some versions of the Bible would say that their names are Raven and Wolf. They kind of sound like Vikings, don't they? They're kind of these, um, these guys. And the men of Ephraim meet them at this place called Beth Barah. And they defeat them and they kill them. And um, when they then meet up again with Gideon, they don't go, oh, thanks very much, Gideon, for what you did and... Um, you know, this is really great. They start moaning and having a go at him. Because they're the biggest tribe, by far, of all of the tribes of Israel. And I think they were upset. They were insulted. 
mostly because Gideon hadn't consulted them about what he was doing, he hadn't got them involved, and um, Gideon basically just flatters them. He just kind of, instead of worrying about it, goes, yeah, yeah, you're really important, you know, I decided to do it this way, and he just basically gives a little soft soap and calms them down. But then Gideon, meanwhile, he's chasing the rest of the army, as you see the line going off back into the mountains. And um, there's a couple of things that don't go well. There's a couple of towns here called Succoth and Peniel. And the reason why they're in the map is because Gideon, at this point, they're getting quite tired. I guess this is taking a while. This is taking a few days. They're getting hungry. They're probably, presumably, their animals, their horses are getting tired. So they ask for supplies. And both towns refuse. They say, no, we're not going to help. And um, Gideon, at this point, is absolutely incensed. And he threatens violence and revenge. I'm going to get you. And unfortunately, kind of reading later on in the story, he does. He goes back. And uh, with the help of a young man in one of the towns, he finds out who the leaders are. And um, unfortunately, he kills them. Um, which is probably not a good thing, really. Probably not what he was supposed to do. And we see again Gideon's anger, because then they go to this place called Kirkor, and they defeat the kings of the Midianites, these guys called, I can't remember what their names are now. Um, But anyway, he kills them, and um, he captures them alive. And the usual rules are you catch them alive, you don't kill them. But then he finds out that these two men had ordered the death of all of his brothers. And he responds in anger and he kills them. But I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got the petulance of the men of Ephraim, you've got the anger and the temper and the violent response of Gideon. But God doesn't kind of go, oh, 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 I'm going away now, I'm not going to help them. They still win and Israel is still saved. And they then have a nice period where they're not oppressed anymore. And, um, but there are some interesting things we can learn from this story. What I, what I kind of call life lessons. I was going to call them leadership lessons, but I think they're bigger than that. They're actually life lessons. And they're worth looking at. And then we'll finish by looking at the thread of grace that really runs through the story. And there are some things that Gideon did well, and there are some that he didn't. And I think the first thing is, is that he worshipped. He gave the glory to God, and he was a worshipper. And, and when you think about it, what, what was God doing when he reduced the army down from 32,000 to 300? Why did it really matter to God whether they recognised their complete obedience to him? And I think we've got to be careful when we look at something like that because God didn't need their acknowledgement. He didn't need their praise. He didn't suddenly turn from being any less sovereign and complete and secure in who he was, whether or not, They gave him the glory. It was more about them. And I can think of at least three reasons, really, why it's really important to give God the glory. One is, the pure, simple fact is he deserves it. So, you know, he did it. The victory they had was because of him, and they deserve to give him the glory. But also, I think it's because it doesn't do us good if we don't do that. The danger is that we we can very easily start going... Oh, didn't I do well? Aren't I wonderful? Isn't it because of me that this happened? 
And the danger with that is we end up in a kind of a performance thing where we've got to measure up. We've got, to, we've got to achieve it. And the whole message of what happened here and the whole message of the gospel and of, of the gospel of grace is, isn't about what we did, is it? It's about what God has done. It's about what Jesus has done for us. And that's our strength. And the danger is when we get into this kind of legalism performance is that in the end, we're never going to measure up. It's never going to work. We're going to trip up. It's going to fail. And uh, we end up coming a cropper. But also, I think, the other thing is, and this story has an element of it as well, is that any success, any good thing that happens in our kind of Christian walk or in our life is not a sole effort, is it? We rely on the things that people who came before us did. We rely on the things that people who work with us do. And the people that we do, you know, in the church, that we do things alongside Everything in life is a team effort as well, and we need to acknowledge that. And I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate success, and we shouldn't ignore the part that we play in that, but we always need to remember at the back of that, and right underpinning it all is the grace of God, and the fact that we are blessed, and the things that happen that are good in our life come because of the grace of God, and because of the others, other people that God puts alongside us, who've helped us and encouraged us as well. And I love the fact that Gideon's first response when God reveals they're going to have a victory is that he's going to worship God. And that's my, I feel that's a challenge for me. And I think that's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? What do we do when good things happen? What do we do when God blesses us, when we see amazing things happen? Is our heart to worship God and focus on him rather than us? And I think that's the right thing to do, isn't it? Because he deserves it. And it's good for us to remember and acknowledge the goodness and greatness of God. Not so much because God needs it, because God's complete, but actually because we need it and we need to do that. But I think the second thing, and I think what I love about Gideon, is it reminds me as well that God is not looking for perfection in us. All he's looking for is obedience. See, Gideon was not a perfect leader in any way. He was very insecure. He was fearful. He had a temper issue. And let's be honest, when we look at that, well, I know I can say, you know, there's lots of that in me. And um, that's a good thing to know, that God used him despite that to save Israel. He needed a lot of big encouragements. He needed a bit of um, TLC from God, didn't he? But in the end, he did what God did, and that allowed God to save them. I mean, it doesn't tell us in the story, but I'm sure as he saw his army getting smaller and smaller and smaller, he wasn't going, oh, that's really great, God. I'm so pleased I've only got 300 people because I know what my response would be. I'd want all of them. Um, but in the end, he did what God was doing. And this is, this is such an encouraging truth. And I know we all know it, but I think sometimes we forget it or we don't live like it's true. God is not looking for super Christians. He's not expecting us to have it all together and to be able to do everything and to get it right every time, first time. And that's great, isn't it? Because deep down we know our weaknesses. We know our faults. We know the things that are wrong with us. And we can very easily make them reasons why we can't do something or we can't be used by God and rule ourselves out. 
Because the amazing truth is, and we look at Gideon, God knew about all of those things about Gideon. He knew what he was like, but he chose to use him. And I think that's the amazing power of God, isn't it? That actually he works through ordinary, weak people like us. And it, I mean, that doesn't mean it's okay to have the faults that we have, the flaws that we have, the things that need to change in our lives. And, and part of what God does is he saves us, what we call sanctification, is that God changes us. And we do improve, I hope. Sometimes I'm not sure about that. But, you know, we hope that God is going to improve us and actually we are going to become more like Jesus every day. But that doesn't stop him using us now as we are despite our imperfections, to be used by him. And I just, find, I just find that so encouraging. I don't know about you, but I definitely do. And my next lesson, well, this is just something I feel quite strongly about. Maybe it's a cultural thing. But that is that planning, good plans, doesn't mean that we lack faith. And um, I was encouraged by that because I was reminded of the fact that actually God planned the salvation of the world before the earth was made. So I think if God is happy to plan something, I think it's okay for us. And I, I don't think Gideon and his men could just kind of rock up, you know, the 300 of them and say, well, okay, God, what are we going to do now? It's good to plan before you get there. It's okay. It's not wrong. And with a little planning and foresight, they were able to enjoy the victory that God was going to bring them. You know, there are times when it's okay, maybe, to wait on God and trust on him and see what he's going to do. And I'm not saying that is a wrong thing to do. But I think in most cases, God actually expects us to have a think about what we're doing. And he expects us to plan it. And he expects us to, um, to do that. And there's kind of this sort of um, almost thought out there that it's more spiritual to be spontaneous and to trust God and to wait on what he's going to do. And, and there is an element of faith in that. And sometimes that's where God will put us. But in the majority of times, he actually wants us to think about what we're doing and plan it. And sometimes it's, that's just an excuse for being lazy or being presumptuous and just trusting God. But actually, he's already given us what we need to do. And actually, the spiritual thing is to say to God, well, what do you think we want to do? And of course, it's not our plan, is it? It's his plan. What we're doing is we're finding out the way that God is going to work in a situation. But I think the last lesson, and I think... It's kind of the most challenging and the most difficult, and I, I still struggle with it, is not to do what Gideon did when he was faced with, the, with kind of particularly the way that the other Israelites behaved and not to respond in anger when people don't do what we want. You know, and it's my experience at times that, that other believers, other Christians, won't always do the right thing. Sometimes they'll let us down. Sometimes they'll be discouraging. Sometimes they won't think what we think is important is. Now, obviously, there's an element that sometimes we get that wrong. And we've got to be, we've got to be careful with that. But we kind of have two choices, don't we, when these sort of things happen. Do we respond badly? Do we speak ill of them? Or do we fight back? Or do we, do we as Bill Hybels talks about, take the high ground and refuse to respond badly? And again, I don't think that means that we just have to accept bad behaviour. It doesn't mean that we don't try and resolve issues or differences with other believers or even try to fight for what we think is the way things should happen or whatever. But in all of that, there has to be... An, the key thing is that we are not going to let that divide us 
We're not going to let that cause disunity. That's the key thing, isn't it? Amen. Yes, Jeff. Because we have to treat. We have to think about the way that God treats us. We let God down. We do things wrong. We have bad attitudes. We don't always get it when God tells us something. But God is full of grace and keeps and patiently waits for us to get, to get on board. And of course, we have to keep it in mind as well that we're not perfect. And it might be that we've got it wrong as well. And that people might just have a valid reason for not getting on board with what we want. You know, a bit of a confession here, but the number of times I've been disappointed when people don't turn up to things. Or they don't come to a prayer meeting, they're not a home group. And I go, oh, no, blah, 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 they haven't turned up. And then I find out why. And usually there's a good reason. And then I feel really awful. So we've got to be careful, haven't we? But we do have to deal with this. And um, we do have to let the grace of God get involved in this as well. Because, you know, our natural response is to take things personally. Our natural response is to be like Gideon and get annoyed and want to respond. And, um, but the thing is, that hurts us in the end. I think that's the key truth, actually, in a way. Actually, the danger is we get bitter, we get angry we then make that thing worse than it ever could have been in the first place. So it's good, isn't it? But let's be worshippers. Let's respond to the grace of God in the amazing things that he does. Let's make sure that we do um, take the high ground. But actually, the key truth in this passage is actually this thread of grace, isn't it? And what that does is it points us to Jesus. And I was thinking about judges, actually, because by the time we get to the story of Gideon, there's already been four judges before that. And there's going to be another seven. I think I've got the number right. There's going to be another seven after that. And what basically happens in each of these stories is that the people of Israel let God down. Instead of being focused on God, they start looking at the, the idols and the gods of the people around them. So they let God down. And what God does is he allows them to be oppressed. He allows them to be subdued by some of the people around them so that they will turn back to him. They cry out to God and God relents and he sends a, God, uh, he sends a judge to save them. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because God doesn't, first of all, he doesn't count against them what they've already done in the past and say, you're always doing this. Don't we do that sometimes to one another? I don't know. Um, I know I do. Or does he say, I know you're going to let me down again. You're going to do it again, aren't you? But he still, God's amazing, isn't he? Because he still shows mercy to them and he still saves them. And even in our story, when Gideon didn't quite, you know, as, the, as things progressed and as things went a bit difficult for him, he responded in anger. He did things he shouldn't do. And I'm sure he, he wished he hadn't. But God didn't withdraw his mercy. He still saved them. And I think this is an amazing picture of the grace of God. It's an amazing kind of picture given in the Old Testament that was pointing towards an even bigger picture of grace and the story of Jesus. You know, that God doesn't take the mercy that was won for us on the cross as Jesus died for us. He knows that we're going to do things wrong. He knows that we've done things wrong. He knows that we're going to get it wrong again. 
But he doesn't take that mercy away, does he? And, you know, we do things sometimes that we wish we didn't do. We think things, I mean, people may not know about this, but we know about it. We think things that we shouldn't think. And yet, God still pours out his mercy and his grace on us. And it's never going to get taken away. And I was thinking about the, um, you've got these 300 men on the hillside, haven't you? And I wonder how they felt as they were doing what they were doing. I think I would have felt a bit silly, to be honest. Um, you know, as they did what they did, as they blew the trumpets, as they smashed the jars and put out the lights, I wonder how many of them thought, oh no, these, um, these Midianites are going to come and they're going to kill me. You know, they're going to see that there's only a few of us and they're going to come and kill us. I wonder what their reaction was as that didn't happen. And as they saw the armies below them fighting one another, and they saw them, the noise as they gathered up, and then they ran, and then they saw this huge army just melt away. And I wonder how they would have felt. I think there would have been relief. I think they would have been really relieved that nothing bad had happened to them. I think they would have been surprised. And I think they would have been amazed, wouldn't they? And, um, I w- and that made me think, am I still relieved when I think about the grace of God? Am I still surprised at what God has done for me? And am I still amazed? When I consider the victory of Jesus that I benefit from simply by believing and trusting in him. Isn't that bonkers? Isn't that amazing? And, um, you know, when I look at what God does, when I look at the lives that he's transformed, when I think about the things he's done through me and to me, when I look at the people he's saved, the healings that he brings, the miracles that he does in people's lives, does that not hit me? And you think about the fact that what I'm like, sometimes the fear that I have, the half-heartedness that I have, The doubt that goes through my mind, and yet, despite all of that, God does what he does. Jesus does what he does in us. And it does us good to remember that, doesn't it? It certainly did me good to remember that. And um, this is grace, that God works for us despite our weakness. In fact, he he triumphs in it. Um, Paul had something called a thorn. We're still not quite sure what that was. We're not sure if that was an illness. We don't know if that was a situation or a circumstance. But it was almost like all the amazing things that God was doing through Paul. He still had this thing. Three times he cried out to God, please take it away. And this is what God said to him in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And this kind of sums up that delight that God has of working through our weakness. Because when we are weak then the grace of God and the power of God is even bigger. And it's not obscured by our greatness, our amazingness. And what what I'm not saying is it's not okay to let God down. It's good not to. Um, and And it's not good for us not to do what God wants. But actually, and and we shouldn't be wanting to change and to be more like Jesus. And to be full of, you know, have more faith and have more certainty about what God is doing. But 
It means we can relax. It means we don't have to be worried and we don't have to perform. We don't have to have it all together all the time because we can be sure of the fact that God is going to do what he's going to do sometimes despite what we're like. That actually our salvation and what God is going to do in this place, the people that he's going to save, the lives that he's going to transform, in the end, it's not down to us. It's down to him. It's down to God. And um, I was thinking about that, and I'm sure that every one of us has a kind of a, a Midianite army in our lives, maybe at this point. Or there's something we just think is too big and is not you know, beyond us. And that's true, in a way. But in another way, that's not. Because it's not beyond the same God who took that massive army and he ended, they ended up charging down through Israel. Because if they'd realised it, they could have you know, beaten up the Israelites, but they didn't. Because God is bigger than that. And the same God who saved Gideon and all the Israelites is the same God who works in us. And that is amazing, isn't it? So let's pray. Yeah, Father God, I think sometimes the the truths that we've been looking at today are really simple to understand. They're not difficult. They're not hard. The issue we face is putting them into practice and living as if they're true. And we all struggle with that at times. We all struggle to have the faith to believe that you can prevail that you can save us, that you can make things different, that you can break into those places you want to see you break into, to bring those transformation in people's lives who maybe we've given up on or we no longer feel we can do. But when we look at a story like this, it reminds us of this amazing truth. It's not about us. It's about you, Lord Jesus. So I want to pray that you'll just help us and encourage us, change our thinking, change our hearts, And remind us that it is all about you. And the good thing about that is that you will always, always do what you plan to do. So Father God, I just pray that you remind us of that. Maybe there are some here that need especially to hear that message this morning. I know I do. And I just pray, Lord, that you'll just lodge that in our hearts. And remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And just, again, remind us of that amazement. And most of all, just help us to worship him now as we come back to worship. Thank you, Lord. Amen.